0: Caught in the tangled web of murder, three people confess the secrets that torture their souls. But in the echoes and shadows of the ancient city of Quebec, Canada, walks a man who knows the whole terrifying truth, but can never tell all the strange things his ears have heard. For he is sworn to silence. Grim silence that points the finger of suspicion at him. Crushing silence, Brings him the contempt of the people who loved and respected him. A deadly silence that leads him to the thirteen steps of the gallows.
1: This is Foreign Correspondence. Deeper into Hitchcock. Welcome
2: to the thirty-eighth episode of Foreign Correspondence. Deeper into Hitchcock podcast. Uh, My name is Michał Oleszczyk and I'm joined as always by my co-host Sebastian Smoliński. Hello. We are a pair of uh, Polish Eastern European film scholars who proceed and analyze Alfred Hitchcock's filmography in chronological order. Last time we talked about strangers on a train and today we will move forward to Hitchcock's next movie. And this is I Confess from 1953, starring Montgomery Clift, Ann Baxter, and Carl Malden. And uh, Sebastian actually this year uh, visited London for a very special conference on I Confess. I really wished I could have joined him, but it was impossible. As I understand it, you spent two days in London at University College London, simply discussing I Confess from a morning till dusk. Is that correct? <laughs> it's, it's totally
0: correct. Uh, the interlude was the evening screening after the first day, the film screening at the at the Real Theater from 35 millimeter print. Very good condition. And yes, two days analyzing this film from variety of perspectives. Let us thank the organizers who were wonderful and reached out to us and invited us for the conference. Stefan Daquette. Charles Barr, um, we're sending warm greetings to Professor Barr, who was our guest previously, and Laura Malvi was also one of the organizers of the conference. Stefan Daquet took most of the responsibilities and was a wonderful host, and I could meet, personally, many Hitchcock scholars that we've been reading throughout these years of of our both podcast and of podcast Adventure with Hitchcock. So, also, uh, I know that you've met Sidney Gottlieb personally in New York. Uh, I've met him in London. So, you know, the editor-in-chief of Hitchcock Annual. So the circle of Hitchcock friends uh, is getting bigger. And uh, I was super happy to be there and to talk about Hitchcock's reception in Poland. That was precisely the Eastern European input to that conference. And I discovered that, I confess, hasn't been released during the, the communist era and that generally Polish film critics uh, weren't writing about Hitchcock as a, let's say, Catholic or profound filmmaker. Most of the time they were a bit patronizing towards him. I, I've read many magazines from the 50s, 60s, 70s, so it was kind of an archival adventure. And there were papers about Robert Berg's Hitchcock Cinematographer by Danny same Mary Pomeranz provided interpretation of Quebecois culture in I Confess. And so on, many very inspiring uh, presentations, which testified to the fact that uh, Hitchcock's movies, of course, still have a large following. N- new interpretations are emerging. It's pretty amazing how much you can read from a single shot from, from Hitchcock and from I Confess, a movie which is not universally loved by, by cinephiles. So yes, that was an amazing adventure at University College London, September uh, seven and eight. 2023.
2: Yes, I was uh, sad not to be there, but I was very, very proud uh, to see your um, social media posts post about it, because this is really uh, a wonderful. It was a wonderful opportunity for you, but also for our podcast, this was almost like a nobilitation that we yes. <laughs> were invited to this very prestigious Hitchcock event. I love that the f- uh, the program that you, that you brought with you, the printout, it's a very English um, Conference because there are very uh, clearly uh, marked uh, tea breaks, <laughs> ten ten yeah. thirty tea and three uh, thirty tea. Yes. So um, no coffee, no coffee, yet, <laughs> and, and, uh, yes. So just just uh, I I'm, I was very very glad and uh, and we are about to actually um, start this episode with a discussion of I confess with one of the panelists. So before uh, we are joined by him, tell us, uh, please, uh, who our special guest of this episode is. I
0: had the pleasure to meet James Bogdański in London, who, by the way, has some distant Polish roots. I asked him about it. And as you can hear, the ending of the last name, which is similar to which mine. Which makes him even uh, more yes. perfect for our podcast. Yes, he's the, the perfect guest. He agreed to, to join us. He teaches film studies at Long Beach City College and El Camino College in Southern California and he'll be in Los Angeles when we'll be talking with him. His um, chapter on queer authorship um, in the television series Penny Dreadful uh, has just been published in the anthology Penny Dreadful and Adaptation, Reanimating and Transforming the Monster and also he has a forthcoming essay in A Companion to Ingmar Bergman on Cries and Whispers. And he's very much interested in queer theory, Hollywood cinema, gothic horror, and so on. Uh, So large, uh, large range of interests, And I found his presentation really interesting. So I'm very happy that we'll be discussing, I confess, with him.
2: Fantastic. And the second you mentioned the last name Bergman, I just thought to myself, wow, I confess, is probably the closest to a... Bergmanian drama <laughs> that Hitchcock ever got to I mean I can imagine a version of this film being made by by Bergman you know like uh, well not a pastor because they don't have confession, but still you know this figure of of uh, tormented man of the frog you know and and the woman uh, that's, you know, the, the, his former lover. And th- th- that's probably the Hitchcockian
0: Five-minute <laughs> monologue of Montgomery Clee. Yes, straight into uh, the Into the camera. To Nick Fist. Yeah, yeah uh,
2: to, to Anne Baxter character, you know, like, you just assume that I don't know who I am, but I don't know exactly who I am. Do you? <laughs> you know, I look ask. at your hands and they are so dry. You know? That's exactly We should ask AI yeah. to produce this. Exactly. Uh, Probably AI is listening already, is making this film on the spot. Okay. so uh, fantastic. Before you and I discuss, I confess, let's talk with uh, James Bogdański, who is about to join our virtual studio.
0: So James Bogdański is with us. Hello, James.
1: Hello. How are
2: you?
0: We're good. We're good. Very
2: good. And it's uh, wonderful to have you on our uh, podcast uh, to discuss... I Confess, uh, a movie that we just introduced a little bit uh, in our episode. And uh, we are very, very thrilled uh, to have you as, um, uh, as the expert in this episode. How is California today?
1: <laughs> California is very sunny and very warm. It, it meets all, all of the stereotypes that you would have about it.
0: <laughs> That's good. That's Poland is a huge winter we have today. Uh, so we are also meeting the stereotypes. So, so uh, thank you for being with us. Uh, maybe let's start with um, your adventure with Hitchcock in general, right? In your um, interests, you highlight pre code Hollywood, feminist and queer theory, gothic horror, the post-human. Uh, where does the Hitchcock fit into that um, landscape, let's say?
1: I first delved into Hitchcock in high school. I think the f- the first film I saw of his was Rear Window, and then I took Hitchcock class in college uh, with David Grevin, who's he's a pretty prominent Hitchcock scholar, and he has a background in queer and feminist theory. So that was really the approach we took to his films. And ever since then, uh, he's just been a cinematic figure of great interest for me, um, given the the breadth of his career and just the multitude of ways that you can get into his his films. Like there's... People like to pigeonhole him in in all sorts of ways, but he's much too complex for that. So he's the the director that's always fresh, no matter how you you want to tackle his films.
2: When was it that you watched, uh, I confess, for the first time? And do you remember your initial um, impression of it?
1: Good question. I just rewatched it last night for for this podcast. The first time, though, it wasn't in in an academic setting. I, I sought it out. Uh, I think because of Montgomery Clift, because I I wanted to uh, see his his brief but spectacular um, filmography. So it might have been uh, six or seven years ago. And I was also interested in this idea of the film as being this Canadian film noir uh, of sorts. And uh, initial responses to it, I guess, uh, it does feel to me very, I don't know if uncanny is the right word, but it definitely smacks of the Hitchcock aesthetic. But there's something about it that feels so alien because it is set in Canada and we're dealing with a, a priestly figure. And so many of Hitchcock's characters are are dealing with repressed sexuality. So that's that's definitely part and parcel of, of the Father Logan figure. So I, I think in that regard, I was I was trying to figure out how it fits with with his other Films because that that film and I think the one after is what, the Wrong Man. Those just feel like a very unique period in his work, coming after what Spellbound and Rope, and then before the color films of the the fifties. So to me, it was it was like just it struck me as as a, a film that doesn't quite fit with with all of the others.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and it has a, a bit of a lower critical standing than. Some of the other '50s films, but exactly. but you you find it, I think, um, given your experience with the film, you find it fascinating in a way, right?
1: Yes, yes, absolutely. Uh, especially given, if you want to look from a, a, a star studies perspective at at Montgomery Clift uh, as as this uh, somewhat repressed uh, figure of masculinity, um, it's it's an interesting combination uh, with with Hitchcock, seeing how he adapts to the Hitchcock milieu so I, that that really intrigued me this this uh f- figure of a star who's if you want to call him uh, a queer star a bisexual star also exploring this this uh, uh repressed sexuality through through the film I confess um I thought that it's almost the, the perfect pairing of of director and star in, in that way
2: mm-hmm. and uh, in Montgomery Clift uh, there's always I mean he, he's like the epitome of um like existential maladjustment, you know. I think that there's always something dislodged, you know, in his in his face, in his persona, in his presence, and he's also, I I would say, a little bit maladjusted in this Hitchcock world, you mm. know, because it's by now it's a world that we know, you know, this uh, you know the the, the 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 basically the genre of the Hitchcock thriller is very much established by that point, and suddenly there's this strange creature entering this world, you know, unlike any other actors that played for Hitchcock before, because even the, um, let's say, queer presences in his films like Robert Walker or Ivor Novello, mm. uh, they were more dandy-like, you know, they had this uh, dandy-like quality. And here there's nothing there's nothing dandy about Monty, you know, <laughs> Cliff. No, no, no. he's, he's, he's strained, you know, he's very, very uncomfortable all the time, I would say. And yeah. that's, that's fascinating.
0: Yeah, and it's the first method actor, right, that ever appeared in a, in a Hitchcock movie as, a, as a, in a starring role, right? Which, of course, is also interesting because I think we we can feel these, uh, this tension also between Hitchcock's approach, his approach to stars, as you mentioned, and uh, Montgomery Clift's very different way of working and more, more troubled, let's say, lifestyle. Than some of the previous stars, like James Stewart, for example.
1: Right, right, and and you're alluding to his method acting background as well, which does not really comport with which Hitchcock's preferred style of, of uh, positioning his actors in, in very precise ways within the frame. But uh, to to your point about Monty seeming very uncomfortable in his own skin uh, in rewatching the film last. Night. The first shot we have of him is in the the rectory, I believe, where he's looking out and he sees a figure. He doesn't, I don't think, quite know at that point that it's Otto Keller. But he's he's, uh, maybe on the third floor of this building looking out through a pane of glass. And it's just such a a startling image because it seems like he's encased from the outside world, like he's in this uh, hermetically sealed frame within a frame. And it just shows how boxed in his character is, I think, within the film as a whole.
0: Definitely. And I think you're finding very interesting interpretations for that. Uh, You you, you interpret, I confess, in a very interesting way. We've met uh, in London uh, live, which doesn't happen in case of all all our guests. Uh, Some of them we just know from Zoom, but we've met at the Hitchcock conference that I'll maybe describe a bit later. And you de- you delivered a fantastic paper Hitchcock and the Holocaust sacrificial bodies in I confess and we are very happy to have you here because as I mentioned this is kind of a this is a movie which is considered more of a minor Hitchcock in these in these glory days people are less passionate about it but you find. amazing, you know, maybe I I shouldn't say maybe, uh, maybe not, not to spoil the fun for our listeners, but very interesting uh, tropes and themes to understand, I confess. And also given that we're recording in Warsaw, you are in California, uh, in LA, right? LA.
1: Yes, LA.
0: So um, also the fact that Otto Keller, as you mentioned in your paper, was born somewhere next to Poznań, so Posen in in German, Uh, it gives us this additional context, but generally you look at I Confess as a movie about Holocaust. Could you maybe introduce this idea? I had the pleasure of listening to your presentation and I hope that our listeners will also look at this movie from a new perspective.
1: Of course. So... In approaching the film on on like a surface reading, you might not think that the Holocaust has a a presence in in the story uh, or for the characters beyond perhaps the tangential biographical elements attached to O.E. Hasse, who plays um, the Otto Keller character. Uh, But what I found intriguing in my research is the lead up to the film, how um, Hitchcock did have some direct involvement in the post-war excavation of the Holocaust and what actually transpired the camps. And he was approached by this producer, uh, Sidney Bernstein, who had been a longtime collaborator of his. And uh, he was approached to edit uh, material from some of the uh, concentration camps, the liberation uh, footage that was filmed by the Allied troops. And so he worked on it for a number of weeks and, and compiled footage that was meant to be displayed to German civilians after the war to show them just the, the degree of the barbarity that, that happened in their own uh, backyard, so to speak. And the film was never released. It was it was shelved, and then uh, it was called Memory of the Camps, uh, and it was finally pieced together in the 80s from the Imperial War College in London uh, and released on, on different uh, networks. So this was, I think, maybe five years before he made I Confess. And so what intrigued me was that in his immediate post-war films, you see him, uh, Hitchcock, working through a lot of these issues related to guilt always, but guilt involving uh, fascism uh, and, and just the, the legacy of the Holocaust, uh, especially in uh, the film Rope, with, um, which was based, based on a true, true murder from the 1920s with Farley Granger um, and Jimmy Stewart, And they deal with this idea of the the Superman, right, the Nietzschean Superman who can choose who lives and who dies. And I I, I see a very clear way of tracing that through, I confess, uh, with the Otto Keller character, who's who's the the guilty party. Spoilers for people who haven't seen the film.
0: No, this is Uh, fine. This is fine.
1: Yeah, so he's he's the guilty man, uh, but his guilt, of course, is is transferred to Father Logan through the confessional. And and I thought it was a very intriguing idea to explore that uh, Otto Keller, uh, for for all of his uh, sin as, as as the murderer, um, he's a very ambiguous figure in the film. Uh, and of course, as as your viewers probably are aware, Hitchcock uh, apprenticed in Germany for a time in the twenties, um, worked on two films there. So so he is very familiar with German culture, the German film industry, and Oihasa, e. Hasse, who, who did serve in the German armed forces during the war, so clearly selecting a man who is is from Germany to play a, a German. But I, I found it very, very intriguing that you could read the Keller character as perhaps um, either an ex-Nazi who has uh, fled to Canada, or we could read him as, as a, a Jewish person who has Perhaps converted to Catholicism, or uh, is is uh, living under an assumed identity. And so I think I think that that ambiguity uh, is a way for Hitchcock to explore the ways the Holocaust has really damaged uh, these individuals, including Father Logan, who who serves voluntarily um, in in the war. He he enlists, and that's what uh, creates the divide between him and and Ruth. The Ann Baxter character. So all, all of these different parts seem to be tracing back to this past, right? De- dealing with the the uh, the unresolved trauma of the past.
0: Can I can I provide a quote from your paper, which I please do. Yeah. So speaking about this ambiguity surrounding Otto Keller character, you wrote: "The monstrous doubling renders Keller a multivalent figure, Janus-faced, both Nazi and Jew." and yet neither, rendered opaque by the noirish ambiguities in which the film cloaks him. In this way, he recalls the pharmacon, which Plato used to mean both poison and remedy. So this is really kind of explosive stuff when you think about I Confess, right? And I also liked uh, the way in which you analyzed uh, several pieces of dialogue, for example, the one referring to several, several million people, Right, I think it's something Ann Baxter says. Right. Yes. <laughs> so this question's also, you could say, of universal guilt. Right. Uh, this is something that Carl Jaspers was writing about after the war: the, the problem of this, you know, the guilt of humanity faced with this unthinkable genocide. And yet, uh, when I think you read Autocolor this way as this Janus-faced. He starts to be a really interesting figure in this in this film, uh, so I think I also like the way that we can shift the emphasis from Father Logan to Otto Keller as this more interesting character, right? So maybe once again in Hitchcock's films, the the villains are more fascinating than the the, the good guys, I would say.
1: Yes, yes, I, I wholeheartedly agree, and I think that's part of my project is um, rescuing Otto Keller from from being an obscure Hitchcock villain because I was just rereading Robin Wood's book or his chapter on I Confess and he really throws the Otto Keller uh character under the bus and he says the only interesting thing about the movie is the uh, Anne Baxter subplot (laughs) and I, I think it's quite fascinating but it's it's clearly not the only element worthy of our our analysis um and like you were saying with with uh Otto Keller um one thing that really stood out to me in re-watching the film last night is is the uh, the climactic scene outside of the courtyard when he tries to prevent uh, his his wife Alma from reaching Father Logan and, and confessing mm-hmm. her husband's crime, and that's the only point in the film where uh, either actor um, speaks German, where Otto commands her to. A stop uh, to come to come back to him in German and then when she's dying I, I could never make out what she's saying because uh, I think LaRue doesn't understand her and it's it's actually Logan who understands the German and I actually looked mm-hmm. this up and translated it online but but she she says as he translates forgive me and she's saying that in German so I think that's it's very intriguing how mm-hmm. in this moment of revelation uh, right that's where their mother tongue emerges um, mm-hmm. so this idea that they're they're playing with different identities throughout the film, right? Being the he's the obedient painter. The the uh, other priests say, "Oh, there's so much we can learn from him. He's so he's so inventive and so reliable." And but there's there's really not much we know about his past, mm-hmm. and and that's what makes him intriguing. Just like Father Logan, right? There's there's so much unspoken about who they they are and what they did during the war.
0: And if we remember the German character from Lifeboat, yeah. who was also the one that we could learn so much from. Right? Um, I find it really, really interesting. Also, the figure of the German in Hitchcock's post-war movies or wartime movies.
2: Yeah, and now that I listen to you both, I I think that, you know, usually we point to those later uh, Hitchcock thrillers from the 60s, like Torn Curtain or uh, Topaz as films in which Hitchcock revealed his interest in, let's say, geopolitics of Mm -hmm. the moment, right? But actually, when I listen to both of you, I think that those... Films like I Confess and Lifeboat are just as, let's say, engaged in the politics of the day, I mean, uh, even by depicting German characters, right? I mean, this is way before, let's say, the good German character that uh, Marlon Brando will play in Young Lions, for example, Mm. right? Or even, I don't know, Douglas' Cirque... uh, time to live and time to die. Mm-hmm. So here is this ambiguous German figure, right? In this movie. But what I really, I rewatched the film yesterday uh, after many years uh, not seeing mm-hmm. it. I actually saw it years ago. And and this was my second screening after, I think, 20 years. And I was struck by the cleverness of the premise, of course, because mm-hmm. here, let's say the, uh, the sacrament is the MacGuffin, right? Because 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 the the fact that that the priest cannot reveal the secret is really what the entire plot hinges upon that's the entire point but what struck me uh, when i watched it again is that actually this is a movie not about one vow of silence but about two vows of silence because there is the vow of uh, silence implicit in marriage because what we see in at the beginning are two confessions right Keller confesses to the priest, but then he immediately confesses to his wife. Mm -hmm. And the wife remains faithful to the husband by not revealing his secret throughout the movie until until the very, very last moment. But when I was watching it again, I really focused on her plight even more than on the plight of the priest. Because I would say that the actress, the German actress, uh, Dolly Haas, she communicates this guilt and this, you know, this this tremendous weight of the secret very brilliantly, very, very movingly. And the, the kicker is that she's also blaming herself for what her husband done, because apparently he did it for her, mm-hmm. right? right? He says that she wanted a better living. So maybe in her mind, she's blaming herself, you know, maybe I really literally, you know, made this, made this happen. So I thought that uh, probably, you know, this character of the wife, is the true, um, let's say, partner or the true counter counterpart to Monty Mon- Montgomery Clift's uh, priest, and I found her the most moving uh, character in the in the film. Really,
1: I, I can see that, and I'm—you've got the gears turning in my head. That that of course, there's the mirror imagery, the doubling of Logan and Otto, but now we have Alma and Ruth uh, completing that, uh, and I'm so glad you mentioned her as this. Second confession, um, because that st- stood out to me when I rewatched it last night. That Hitchcock uses a dissolve, I believe, from the the confession with Logan to the confession to the wife. So it's it's quite seamless. Like we're meant to to make yeah. that transition, and and also the scene uh, where she's serving all the priests in their their living quarters, and Hitchcock uses this very um, strange shot. Where it's the the back of Montgomery Cliff's yes. neck, like the yes. the nape of his neck, where she's she's waiting to see if she, if he looks at her strangely because he knows that her husband's killed
2: and And I would say this is a question to both of you, actually. I don't have the answer, is that this very scene can make us question who is the main character of the film. Because whose perspective are we supposed to share in this scene? I would say that it's her perspective that we are supposed to share. You know, she is the one, actually the point of view shots. The suspense is built around her. Around her. And it's just like the scene in Blackmail, you know, this famous sound scene in Blackmail, the knife, the knife. They are talking about, you know, some trivial stuff. But the woman knows that something really horrible happened. So maybe it's one of those examples in which Hitchcock, even maybe in you know, in spite of himself, but he moves the center of identification towards the female character Mm -hmm. more than to Montgomery Clift, although I would also argue if, you know, Clift, he's not like a stereotypical male presence in the film, although maybe in some shots he is, but but he's, you know, the the, the frock makes him ambiguous. Yeah,
0: the the figure of the priest itself makes him like this transitional, uh, uh, kind of a drag figure, right? And... Mm. Kind of dressing up is is the premise of the Mm. plot. So, but only to continue what James said about, yeah, there's this first scene of confession when we have this cut between Father Logan and the wife. And there's the suggestion that Otto Keller is actually saying the same thing to both of them. It's like the continuation of that conversation, but we can assume that he's saying something similar. And also it made me think at the conference we were kind of having fun with pointing to these homosexual subtexts, beginning with the flat tire in a, in a bike and so on, uh, but also the scene when they are painting and Otto Keller um, is like uh, coming to Montgomery Clift character and he's below the ladder and he's like asking him, it's uh, they're almost touching and then the wife comes and we have this shot very neatly mapping three characters and the wife look strangely, is it a look of jealousy, or a look of fear? So that's maybe, that's a way of mapping your uh, German, let's say, interpretation onto the sexual one that David Griven, for example, proposed at the conference.
1: Yes, uh, and I, I love his, his term for Montgomery Clift and, and the type of male figure he groups him with in, within Hitchcock's oeuvre, I think he calls it the tremulous brunette, oh, uh, right, where yeah. it, as opposed to the ice, icy blonde. But but yes, I, I I definitely think that's such a valid a reading of the Logan character, right? That the homoeroticism between him and Otto, uh, that they both have this secret that they're bound up with, and they have to keep it uh, a secret from from those around them. And even I think it's it's perhaps David mentioned this in his paper that Ruth was so heartbroken because Logan volunteers to go to fight right it's not like he was conscripted he enlists voluntarily so there's this it's almost the sense that he wanted out of their relationship (laughs) uh in in some sense that he was not the heteronormative lifestyle was Mm -hmm. not for him but as as you were mentioning with uh step back a moment to the Alma character that confessional scene I think further uh humanizes Otto in in a sense that we realize along with him that Logan cannot betray his secret because of the the requirements of the confessional and to me that also makes it plausible that Otto may be read as a Jewish character who is masquerading as as a catholic because it, it's he didn't go into the confessional with any ill intent like i can tell him because he now can't tell any anyone else but he realizes it after the fact that he's protected because of Logan's uh, obligation as a priest so it's it's almost like he's he's piecing it together in a very ramshackle way, that he's not this fully malevolent figure who has this all planned out, uh, that it's, it's really, we see the, the, the stages of paranoia uh, as, as he progresses in the film.
0: And you also mentioned in your article that when he's asked, when he was confessing the last time, he, he doesn't remember, he doesn't know, which also is maybe the suggestion as you interpreted that it's his first ever confession, right? So yes. uh, that's pretty, pretty interesting.
2: That's fascinating. And, uh, you know, it's a very subversive reading, you know, to position or to try to position the character as sort of both or, you know, simultaneously, you know, like like a possible Nazi or a possible victim of, of Nazism, you know. But I think it also your reading reflects this heavy confusion. Uh, that uh, was in the minds of people in the immediate post-war years where still the knowledge of what happened wasn't entirely complete. It was still being sort of pieced together, you know, new facts were being discovered all the time and uh, uh, the world was emerging from Mm -hmm. from a state of uh, chaos and in this reading, you know, Otto is like you said, he has those two faces like the Janus face and he even has this Palindromic name, you know, like you can read this name from, you know, either 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 side. But I I would say that absolutely what uh, struck me at this second viewing really uh, was the conversation, the conversation that uh, Otto has with the priest at the very end, right before he is killed, because uh, when he says to the priest, "You are lonely. You are really alone," and he says, "Oh, I'm not alone," and he says, "Yes, you are." I think he strikes both at the problem of the main character, but also at the problem of the actor. Because as we know, Montgomery Clift was a profoundly, sadly, lonely person. And here, yes. you know, it, it's one of those moments where the the border is blurred between the character and the actor. Because when I see this scene, I cannot help but cry for Montgomery Clift, who's listening to those words. And I think he as a metal actor he probably you know listened to them on a very personal level i don't know if that's reading it too much into it well,
0: i don't think so and and just let us say what what a period for him that was right yes. he started making movies just 5 years earlier uh, the surge the eras uh, placing the sun next uh, from here to eternity i mean these are all red river so brilliant performances that didn't age, actually, right? And I think this is fascinating what you said. I also have this feeling that this character may be a problem for Hitchcock as a director of drama because precisely of this detachment. Maybe that's why he was looking for other points of view. And there are many points of view, um, different points of view in this film. Uh, Larus, played by Karl Malden, who, by the way, will be, father next year in On the Waterfront, which, well,
1: <laughs> That's right. it's I very funny when
0: I, I, I couldn't stop thinking about it, you uh-huh. know, but he also has uh, many PO views, um, including the, the the crucial one when he establishes the link between Ann Baxter and Montgomery Clift when they are outside the window. I
2: have a question to you. How do you yes. read the uh, Ann Baxter character and the casting mm. of Ann Baxter? Are we supposed to be suspicious of her story? Just because she's Eve, <laughs> right? All about Eve. Or like, what? What's your take on this character and 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 the performance? Of course,
1: I was thinking about that upon the, my rewatch last night. That she's somewhat atypical for a Hitchcock female lead. Well, even looking back at his films from the '30s, uh, I was thinking of like. Um, uh, Sylvia Sidney in in uh, Saboteur. So yeah there's there's something about her character that is that is a little Eve like yeah. especially the the flashback because as as I've read in in lots of different scholarly accounts there's something so Uh, embellished or fabricated or fantasy-like about her flashback and it reminds me of of that uh, shot in All About Eve where she's standing in front of the mirror (laughs) because everything just seems to have an an extra shine to it and all of her words are very flowery and romantic uh, which is not to discount her her version of events but there does seem to be this quality of that she's a daydreamer of sorts uh, in, in the film and even, even I feel bad for her poor husband because uh, he says in one scene in their bedroom, do you still love him? And and her her response is something like, uh, I've always loved him, even the day we were married or something like oh, that. Man, so yeah. it cuts very deep. So there's this sense that she just can't move beyond the romance she had with Logan. And and so I think that that's perhaps one of the reasons Hitchcock cast Sam Baxter is that her character is so... F- fixated on what they had in the past that she can't live a, a, a full life um, like she, she can't let, let it go except at the very end uh, and I think this Robin Wood mentions this in his book that what seems so odd dramatically is that when Logan is trying to talk tell her down from from shooting the police Ruth just leaves the scene she tells her husband take me home like she doesn't even want to care what happens to Logan at that point so there's there's something very um, unusual about her character that she's there's this uh, passion that she can't move beyond but then at the very end she's there's like this fickle quality suddenly she's done with Logan
0: so imagine Anne Baxter having a child with Montgomery Clift as was the the, the... The first version of the script, Montgomery Clift wanted to do that, right? McGilligan writes that Montgomery Clift was happy with this project because there was this illegitimate child in the script. So uh, I find it also. I, I must tell you that I, I I lie. I had a crush on Anne Baxter because of All About Eve. For me, she she was she's very sexy in that All About Eve role and and so on. So I was really surprised and kind of like I felt angry at Hitchcock when he said that he he wasn't, you know, he wanted somebody else, a more beautiful actress, that Anne Baxter wasn't enough for her. I think she totally works here Mm. precisely with this all about Eve connection and this, kind of this, she's uh, a bit unreliable. And you mentioned the the husband thing. And of course, the the, the husband is first seen when he's uh, advocating for women's rights, which of course Mm. makes him kind of a a duped figure in a way (laughs) by her cunning and her Colorful past as a, as a character,
2: mm.
1: and it sets him as a contrast to Logan. Like the pre- the priesthood, you can't get more traditional and conservative than that. And then here's her progressive uh-huh. husband.
0: Yeah, but uh, honestly, I haven't studied representation of priests in in Hollywood. But of course, when I was rewatching, I confess, I thought immediately immediately about First Reformed, and mm. Ethan yes. Hawke. Hull- <laughs> Right. So this, of course, the trope of sexy priest is not not, not new, but, you the, know,
2: the the hot priest, right? The hot the, priest. Right. The, like, Andrew
0: Scott. <laughs> uh, Andrew. Yes. So so um uh, Fleabag and so on. But here, you know, these two these movies are so much about guilt and the first reformed is also about this wider guilt or responsibility. Right. It's a hmm. certain moment. It's about the, the fate of the world. Right. As Paul Schrader sees that with. Uh, okay. You know the the um, ecological disaster on the horizon and crisis of faith and uh, maybe it's not unlike the post World War II ethical crisis after Holocaust, right? So so yeah, the trope of the sexy priest, and I think the, the Montgomery Eclipse is, is is super sexy. Of course, I mean probably we, yes, did, yes, we didn't have to probably mention that uh, in this conversation, okay. but um, James, have you been to this to the screening of I Confess in London from thirty five mm? Yes, yes. Yeah. So I I especially could appreciate uh, his his movements and silhouette on a, on a big screen uh, projected on and film. And his
2: even his hair looks great in the film. You know? <laughs> I mean he's he's probably the first hot priest in the history yeah. of cinema because I think so. Before him it's like Bing Crosby, you know, but he's mm. you know uh, like more affable. But this guy, mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's very striking that this is probably the first like really attractive actor playing a priest in this way, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, that's also quite yes. quite physical, and um, that's interesting. I don't know what, you, what are your thoughts on this.
1: I support that reading that not only is, is he so physically striking, but he, he has this conflicted inner turmoil whereas the the Bing Crosby figure doesn't <laughs> really right his his interior life is is uh is pretty placid but I remember uh <laughs> when Fleabag came out I I mentioned that to David Grevin jokingly as an aside that oh here here's Monty the original uh hot priest oh yeah, yeah there you go. <laughs> our, our minds think alike
2: yeah yeah absolutely and it's just funny that there's this strange um duality you know to to the scenes in which he is in wearing his frock you know and in which he is like uh, dressed as a civilian mostly in the flashback sequence because i have sort of trouble connecting those two images you know they look so different even when he's painting you know like and he he's like in a shirt you know with his with his arm sleeves uh, up i mean th- there's this duality i don't know he's mm-hmm. um, He's very very enigmatic in this in this role, I would say. I don't I don't know how to mm. it. I also think meth doctors are so associated with their
0: off screen style, right? Like mm. James Dean, Marlon Brando, you know. So mm. the uh, not only but but if, even when they are some of them, at least the nineteen f- fifties ones, when even when they are in the movie, they are still, you know, this larger than life. Tormented personalities like James Dean, right? We associate him with these three roles he played, but still, he's James Dean. And I think there's something, something not maybe equally as with James Dean, but there's something like that going on, going on with Montgomery Clift that we uh, so much associate him with, you know, the, the subversive element of the '50s that it's difficult for us to believe in him. As a priest, right? So I think it's, it's much easier to to you know to accept Karl, Karl Malden on the waterfront. Yeah, and
2: we never we never see yes. him perform mass or anything, right? He's just walking around yes. in this frock. Yes. You
1: know? Yeah, it's, it's always in the the after hours capacity. We never see him yeah. in the in yeah. the job.
2: I wanted to ask uh, both of you about uh, Karl Malden's role because every time I read something about this film. Everybody is saying, oh, yes, this is the first time that Hitchcock is working with a method actor, mm-hmm. uh, Montgomery Clift. But nobody mentions that there are two method actors here mm-hmm. because Carl Malden is a method actor. He worked with Elia yeah. Kazan famously and to Oscar winning results mm-hmm. in um, Streetcar Named Desire before this and after this in On the Waterfront, as you mentioned. But and yet we don't think necessarily of Malden as a method actor because he's sort of avuncular. But, uh, what is your reading of this of this character? like what's uh, because he's probably like the main antagonist of the main character, really? He's trying to get him behind bars.
1: right. I, I, he's He's an equally complex figure as as a number of papers at the the London conference attested mm. to. and it's Carl Malden, so you can't quite hate him, right, as other no. Hitchcock antagonists, uh, and he has the choir boy background, so he's clearly somewhat sympathetic right he thinks that if a priest is truly to blame for this murder it's it's also an attack on his own faith but he's just so dogged right in that that um conversation he has with Logan about uh too too much mystification right you see you see him already form forming his uh theory of the case like what actually happened and and the way he misleads Ruth into confessing to the affair even though he didn't need that information right he he knew that the time that logan was with her was not the exact time of the murder and uh, so there're all these ways that he's he's painted as a very underhanded figure and just just wants to get his man right there's there's uh something about him that uh rubs one the wrong way i mm-hmm. i guess but i'm i'm thinking of uh the, the first moment we meet the Crown prosecutor, at, I think he's at a party right at the, the Ruth and her husband's house, and he, I guess what Hitchcock does is he shows him with all these different party tricks at certain points where he's balancing a glass on his head, but there's one scene I think where he's talking with LaRue in his office and he has a coin That's between two forks above a glass of red wine it's just the most bizarre image yeah Uh, and i don't want to read too much into it but i love how it is this sense that like there are these institutional forces coming to bear right on both sides Mm. whether it's the church or the the parliament and the the police force and and being suspended right above a a a bloody abyss so so i that's how i see larue right he's just closing in on logan more and more in his personal life but also in terms of the the murder case so there's the sense that he's the antagonist as you both both put it but he's also the one who's trying to rupture the the secrets that everybody has right he's as as, as any good detective does so there's the sense that the, the the narrative requires him to to constantly build towards the, the revelations that come out
0: and i also think he's um from our perspective a Pretty modern figure, meaning that he, he he doesn't privilege the the Father Logan, right? He doesn't. Say, oh, he's a priest, so you know maybe we should kind of go around him, maybe ask him uh, in a delicate way. No, he like he has this modern perspective that you're a priest or you're not. It doesn't matter. You can be a killer, right? I think this is this is something. And I remember that uh, Mary Pomeranz delivered a very sophisticated paper on. Quebecois yes. culture mm. and Larousse as this kind of anti-church authority figure and the one also who wants to climb up the ladder thanks to this mm. case. I mean it was a, it was I, w- I I cannot even reconstruct it because it was so detailed and kind of reading a lot into the movie but this Larousse as a figure who wants to kind of be one of the members of the party thanks to this case and so on. It's also interesting trope that I wanted to to mention
2: <laughs> Well, uh this this has been uh, fascinating and we really really appreciate you, you know, finding finding the time. I just personally wanted to ask, I'm just curious because, you know, I confess it's not the obvious film to revisit, you know, it's not one of those golden classics of uh, Hitchcock uh, in the, in the 50s. Is there any other quote-unquote minor Hitchcock that you think is ripe for uh, rediscovery or maybe as subversive or interesting uh, uh, from his, you know, whole filmography?
1: That's a great question. I know the the conference we attended already did under Capricorn. That would have been uh, uh, another one. I know it's not regarded as amongst his best, so I I don't know if it's... A neglected film but I've always been struck by frenzy as this Mm. sort of last last gasp of Hitchcock greatness Mm. and I know a lot of people are turned off by it in terms Mm. of the the graphic nature of it it's a little almost beyond the pale for what Hitchcock normally shows in terms Mm. of murders but I just think there's something about it where it's it's I mean Hitchcock's always on the cusp of modernity right he's not never an antiquated Director, um, but that film just feels like he's trying to tackle this new societal shift that's that's underway in in London and England um, in terms of uh, a, a franker attitude towards uh, sex and and promiscuity. So I just I think that's it's this film that should be perhaps reconsidered as as more in keeping with Hitchcock's general fascinations as a director it's not it's not some strange outlier where he's just mm. trying to stay current and stay stay relevant uh
2: that's a great risk. idea mm-hmm. for uh, for uh, the future of our podcast because eventually we'll we'll get there and who knows maybe we'll, we're, like, a bit, we're a bit split right oh. yes but <laughs> i also ha- i haven't i dislike the film or um, i would say i dislike the memory of the film uh-huh, because i okay. saw it around 15 years ago oh, last yeah. time and i still i remember this Shudder of horror because it was simply so vile in a way. But but you know I, I'm always I'm always uh, curious with Hitchcock because you you never you never know. And you mentioned this modernity, this flirtation with modernity. It's also there in in I Confess. You know, this opening with those arrows, mm. you know, saying direction, direction, or direction, direction. Yes. I mean, it's almost like Godard, you know, like yeah. like those world of science, you know, in vivre sa vie, or, you know, using those uh, signs and letters, uh, interrupting the action. I mean, this is basically the director saying, you know, this story is starting. Look here. I will draw an arrow for you. It's very, mm. very modern, I would
1: say. Yeah. I agree. The, the the flourish of the avant-garde in, in the opening.
0: Absolutely, uh, James. So one last question: um, Do you have publishing plans for the essay so far? Are you planning to, let's say, make it public? Your your paper on I confess.
1: Yes, I'm trying to decide what the best venue would be. Uh, perhaps the Hitchcock Annual Journal, uh, or the the journal for um scms uh the society for cinema and media studies mm-hmm. um which has an online publication but they also have the, the physical journal as well so i i don't know if i should just uh, s- submit to both and see see what comes of it but i definitely want to publish it in some form there's there's more research to be done to expand it and and uh look into areas that might benefit from a little more uh critical attention
0: so, sounds good and Fingers crossed.
2: Fantastic, and uh, when I look uh, at your apartment behind you, I very comforted because uh, it seems that every uh, film buff's apartment looks the same. <laughs> like uh, my my apartment is exactly the same. Like stacks and stacks of oh yeah, books that, that's and, true, uh, that's DVDs true. and stuff. So it's always too little space and too many DVDs, and you know, too. <laughs>
0: you still have <laughs> yes. place for your own bed. So yes. As long as yeah, you yeah, have yeah, you have a yeah, place to sleep, yeah. that's right
1: i'm 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 thankful to hear you say that i I have uh, suspended shelves above us that you can't see out of out of frame that, that line the walls. So, yeah, it's 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 a a lifelong love affair with books and and movies.
2: Thank you so much, James. It was uh, an absolute pleasure and and an honor. So uh, hopefully you stay in touch. and thank you so much for discussing I Confess with us.
1: I'm so grateful. Thank you, thank you.
2: So that was uh, James Bogdansky, and I'm uh, very, very happy about this conversation. Uh, Lots of great tropes. Is there anything else that we could discuss about the film? Are there any things that you find striking? I have one question Uh for you, uh because
0: uh, this movie is usually, you know, interpreted as a a Catholic film, Hmm. as the most explicitly Catholic film that Hitchcock made along with The Wrong Man after rewatching this movie yesterday. Do you agree with that? Do you think this theme of religion is really treated, you know, in depth or it's just another curtain?
2: No, I don't agree with this. And I think that anyone who says that this is the most Catholic film that Hitchcock made never saw Psycho because Mm. I think Psycho is the most Catholic actually. Mm. But um, just because, well, we'll get to that. (laughs) But I actually would say, and, you know, we didn't have a chance uh, yet, but my big question mark connected to this film is that I don't feel that Hitchcock is really invested in this sort of Catholic theme of this story you know I think he's very invested in the melodrama because it's actually very melodramatic you know and I think as I said before that he is very sympathetic towards the character of Alma as this woman who is carrying the guilt of some other person of her husband but really i don't think that you know the i mean catholicism here provides a very very useful gimmick because you know gimmick, yeah. this this idea that you know the secrecy of confession cannot be violated it's a great uh, construction it's a logical construction and i also would say it's a nice provocation towards let's say the protestant majority in the states uh, because uh, we even find in the reviews of the film that you know many waspy uh, critics found this implausible, you know that oh, this cannot be like this, you know this. And, and Hitchcock, as, as a Catholic, he knew very well that it's treated very, very seriously, right, by the Catholic Church, but also by the by the faithful. And uh, in the making of a video of this film, uh, one of Hitchcock's biographers says that there's this huge correspondence between Hitchcock and Joseph Breen, who was the head of the Production Code Office, and you know the head censor, basically, of Hollywood, uh, who also was educated in Jesuit school, and uh, he says that this whole correspondence between them resembles one of those long discussions that two Jesuit schoolboys can have about the niceties and details of Catholic doctrine, you know, uh, does, you know, Montgomery Clift looking at Otto Keller in the courtroom already constitute the breach of the, you know, confession or not, etc. So. I just want to say this I think uh, that catholic doctrine provides a very nice plot idea here but I don't think that this is a film that really deals with with guilt and with uh, those primary emotions that Hitchcock had about some catholic uh, ideas like like grace like forgiveness I think this is pretty um superficial on this Sneak, on this you know, yeah you know. it, it, and and you know if you want to Feel like deep pang of Catholic feeling in Hitchcock. I would point to *The Wrong Man*, mm-hmm. which is much deeper and much more felt. I mean, not just on this level. And I would say *Psycho* because I think *Psycho* does this horrible trick of killing off Marion, and of course, in the in the middle middle of the movie, right after she actually quote-unquote, converted, because, you know, she's a sinner, She she's an adulteress, and she's a thief, and she meets Norman, she has this long conversation, and she decides to change her life. She decides, you know, to return the money and, you know, go back, and she's killed at this very moment. And uh, I think it's a very, very bleak joke on behalf of, of the doctrine, but also she, she dies uh, in a state... That you know the Catholic doctrine would uh, would describe as grace because she actually repented for his, for her sins. But we'll talk about yeah. the, uh, different types. Yes, I is. confess. I think Catholicism is simply a plot device in this film mm-hmm. more than anything else. Yes, and and
0: also I'm thinking about the fact that 1950s were at least sev- there were several directors who. Uh, really excelled in transcendental cinema, right? As Paul Schrader called it. I'm thinking that between... Before I Confess, we had Diary of a Country Priest and after I Confess, we had uh, Ordet by uh, Dreyer. So, like, two masterpieces of... Not Catholic, one is Catholic, the other is not, of course. It's Protestant, but two masterpieces of, you know, the spiritual cinema.
2: And this is so, based on a French uh, play, right? This is yeah. uh, so... Uh, yeah. another.
0: Yeah, so, so I'm thinking, yeah, I would agree with you that... It's kind of a gimmick, and maybe we're expecting too much. I mean, or, or the French were expecting too much, because this was also one of the favorite Hitchcock movies uh, for the Cahiers du mm-hmm. Cinema crowd. They yeah. uh, Romer and Chabrol, and I think even Truffaut a bit, they really considered it like a major Hitchcock because precisely of these themes, you know, that the author finally focuses on these themes but also i'm thinking about a very obscure movie maybe our listeners wants to have a a kind of recommendation of a polish film that you can actually find somewhere online for free with english subtitles on the polish platform 35 mm links is the polish title it's uh, set during world war ii and one of poland's uh, best actors Jerzy radziwiłowicz plays the priest the home army uh-huh. dissident soldier uh, confesses to him that he needs to shoot someone it's the it's the home army so the underground movement at the time is their decision and he's carrying this guilt and i must say this this obscure polish film by by the great director that probably nobody have heard uh, stanisław Różywicz. Yes, outside poland or, or yeah certainly most of our english language listeners don't know him Jezre Dziwiłowicz is also a very handsome actor, mm. kind of maybe a bit Cliftian, but just a bit. So, just you know, there is this trope of, of um, not only of a hot priest, but also the priest <laughs> as the one who who's carrying, you know, maybe too much knowledge. And I'm thinking that maybe in 21st century, as the progression from re- religion to psychoanalysis shows us, therapists are uh, in t- modern TV shows, modern movies, maybe the ones who will have too much knowledge. And mm-hmm. there are I'm I'm just thinking that so many dramas, including You heard My Feelings, uh-huh. are focused around, you know, the figure of a therapist as the one who has more access, carries more knowledge, but it's still human in a way. Okay.
2: Right. That's, and it's also be... bound by secrecy, right? Exactly. Because so uh, not sacramental, but professional. I love this link and uh, the link to Lynx. <laughs> <laughs> this is the film, uh, yes, L-Y-N-X, uh, just like the animal. Rish is a very good Polish woman. I never made this connection, but it's, it's wonderful. Yeah, I, I would just say that I think it's a very interesting film. I don't laugh, I confess. I, mm. I think it's... Um, Full of contradictions, and many of them cannot be even explored by the film, like you know the sexuality of the main actor and stuff. But it's, it's interesting. And but you know, Hitchcock is on the cusp mm. of making some real masterpieces oh, in God. this in this decade. So this, I would say, feels a bit antiquated, just like cobblestone street in Quebec, you know, <laughs> does. But that was poetic. <laughs> uh, yeah, and, and uh, uh, but but you know. Uh, the title uh, i confess uh, also would suggest something very personal but i think that uh, we are about to uh, discuss some films that simply will take us into another level in terms of image sound uh, style and themes as well so this feels more like a throwback to the older hitchcock to the slightly melodramatic Hitchcock. And also, as James brilliantly pointed out, this is a film haunted by by German cinema. Uh, not only by German actors <laughs> like O. E. Hasse and Dolly Haas, mm-hmm. but by German cinema as such. I mean, can't mm-hmm. you just imagine the story? I can perfectly imagine it as, as like a commercial mm-hmm. film in the mm-hmm. 20s, you know, there's the priest, there's the lover, there's the guilt uh, that this could be a story by you know fritz lang or Mm -hmm. or or pabst or somebody else the also with this uh, silent interlude you know this Mm. this flashback sequence with which feels like like a bad german movie from from the 20s so yeah, uh, I I'm I was happy to revisit it, but I will also be happy to move on because we have some wonderful films in yes. store. So next episode, dial M for murder. Yes, and I wish I could watch it in 3D. Did you
0: ever see it in 3D? No, but uh, my mother has a 3D oh. TV, so maybe we can arrange a home screening. We'll
2: Who knows? Maybe maybe we'll 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 see it that way. Uh, so this was. P for priest and uh, M for murder will be next. Uh, If you like this episode, please uh, rate us on iTunes, share the link to our podcast. And uh, we are looking forward to the next episode of Foreign Correspondence. Deeper into Hitchcock.